I'm wanting to, uh, in a way, pick up kind of where we left off last week. Some of you weren't with us. Nice to see some travelers back. Hope you have a good time. Um, last week, we reflected on this question of who I'm becoming, this invitation to grow, that that is the Christian life. And for that to be a reality, um, we need a growth mindset. That is harder than we realize sometimes, because some of us can have a kind of a fixed mindset. This is who I am. This is as far as I go. And yet the invitation is to be open to whatever. And also we explored this reality. You can't grow yourself by yourself. This is why God calls us into community. Or as I'm going to talk about it, communitas. Anyone heard of that word before? No, new one, huh? All right, we'll look into that. But it's, it's not alone. It's with others. Uh, we, we explored the, the painful side of unmet need in our lives. That it triggers faulty thinking, painful emotions, and unproductive, and ultimately unloving behavior, and therefore unhealthy outcomes. Today, <clears throat> so in a way I was reflecting last week upon the invitation to grow ourselves. Um, today I want to think about what it means to grow others. That's the heart of the, the Great Commission, the, the last, and as some might say, perhaps when you're leaving, the last things you say are the most important things because that's the abiding message that you want your people to remember. And it was an invitation to go, to go into all the world. In fact, it really translates, as you go, the expectation is you're going to go. There's no not going in this. Uh, as you go, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. This is why Paul talks about himself being like a father to his children, as he's writing to Thessalonians. In fact, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, you've got 10,000 instructors, but you don't have many fathers. I became a father to you. You see, the heart of the message is like a father to a child. It's a loving relationship, nurturing life through, as he said, encouraging, comforting, and urging you on. And, and this is the invitation to be on mission, God's mission, the great co-mission that we work together with him. It's not us making something happen, it's us joining in with what he is doing in making disciples. A disciple is a learner, a follower. The invitation is not to just admire Jesus, it's to follow him. It's to live like him, to grow into his likeness. And we've been invested with and empowered through a missionary spirit to be missionaries. Who's a missionary? One or two? Well, that's the part of our, our identity, that we are invited to participate in the mission of God. And, and it's not just people like St. Paul, it's all of us are called into that. And it's an invitation, I love these words, we love you so much. Well, that's the NIV, the authorized version says, um, it was kind of because of affectionate longing for you. I kind of like that language. He longed with a deep abiding affection for these, these new believers, this new church that he'd helped establish. And we were delighted to share not only the gospel of God, but our very lives. This is the task of discipleship, is to share our lives, not just a message. The church, I've got a quote here from Alan Hirsch, the church is to be a community of God's people that defines itself 
and organizes its life around its real purpose of being an agent of God's mission to the world. That's what we're, in, that's what we're invited to be oriented around and shaped for and focused upon. What's it like for Jericho Road to be defined by and organized around the call to make disciples of all nations, all people groups? What would that mean? What would that look like? That's what I want to reflect with you on. First characteristic I think of that would be to practice hospitality. I got to practice some hospitality this weekend with Peggy. Beautiful meal she served us and with some other folk and uh, just to be together. Just, but actually, it was wonderful to enter Peggy's home because if any of you have been to her house, you get a window into who she is. Because there's pictures everywhere, there's knickknacks, there's all sorts all around the place. I didn't get taken into the Holy of Holies. Carol did into her craft room. But, um, but you enter into each other's space and you get a window into who people are. This is a part of what hospitality means. So the NIV, it, it kind of gets the message across, but sometimes it's a little bit watered down, I feel. Practice hospitality is literally what Romans 12, 13 part of says. But what the words behind it mean is that you would pursue with haste, almost like a hunter pursuing the, uh, the beast or the, the target or the animal. You chase it down. That kind of urgency towards hospitality, which means at heart a love for strangers, a way of getting to know and connecting with people you don't know very well. It comes from the heart of God. He is a God who practices hospitality. In his family, he's opened the door and invited us to come and sit and eat with him. You see, this is the heart of the message. This is the heart of the nature of God, is to, to, to fellowship with us. And he invites us to do the same. Part of our vision statement here, when you walk past it, what's the first thing at the top of the vision statement? said that with unison and great conviction there. But it is becoming family. So becoming implies growth, change, transition. But what into it? Into family. Brothers and sisters, fathers and children. It implies, family implies marriage, multiplication, children, raising them. It implies there's a leaving and there's a cleaving. This is what happens in families. There's process, there's transition, but fundamentally there's a deep connection. Our, as I mentioned, our eldest daughter, she's a parenting coach. And she seeks to encourage uh, parents teaching something called conscious parenting. Conscious parenting. In other words, are you conscious of what you're bringing into the parenting relationship? Because very often when your kids are playing up and and you're unhappy with that, you react to it out of what you've actually brought into it. It's not about the children. Often it's about you. And that's why I talk about our becoming more self-aware with ourselves, our stories, what shaped us, what, what do we genuinely believe, what lies seem like truth, what pain do we often live out of, and are we addressing those things? Because if we're serious about discipleship, if we're serious about authentic family, things will get provoked. 
anyone been, ever been in a family, in your, your own family situation, and found yourself getting provoked? Thinking, I wish I, I'd rather be somewhere else? No, 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 of course not. No, 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 no. What about at Christmas or Thanksgiving or times when you're with extended family and you're not usually together? Anyone ever feel a little provoked? Anyone ever feel a little provoked in church? And yet the call is still there. I read a re- an, an article recently. Well, in fact, it was something that Hannah quoted, our daughter. And she said, rather than responding with judgment in the moment, which is our sort of knee-jerk response, I invite you to respond with curiosity. She was talking about a parent with her child. But it's so true of us in our adult relationships as well. Rather than judging the behavior I see, because remember we talked about ultimately unhealthy behavior is tied to painful missing needs. And our, 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 you know, our tendency is to judge and say, stop it, stop doing that, do this instead. Well, we've got to stop saying stop it. doesn't work. Does it work for you? Be honest. Because we're more complex than that. We've got to be curious about what's happening in the life of a child. What are they feeling? What might they need? What are they, what's really going on? But the same is true of us as well. And this is where hospitality presents us with a tremendous opportunity. Because in a way, it's about providing shelter for the needy. Relational needs. Knowing, what, understanding what people need. And when we sit across from one another, we eat a meal, we have an opportunity to look into each other's eyes and connect and ask questions. And I think when Jesus sent out the 72, he told them to go and practice hospitality by eating with people. Because when you do that, you'll find out what they need, where they're ill, where they're sick, where they need healing and deliverance, and then do it. But if we never know, we'll never exercise the ministry. And in many ways, hospitality means there's got to be a healing from old patterns of family behavior. But it starts with understanding the place of need. It starts with our having a sense of compassion and empathy for one another. And then working the steps. This is what I encourage people in. In fact, we were doing a bit of this with the worship team. We were talking about how to, when people share something that's a struggle, how to respond with empathy and concern and enter into that space. And and fundamentally, when any of us are misbehaving, In that moment, the last thing we need to go or to experience is judgment. And very often that's what we do experience. And it actually makes it worse. Because judgment is the opposite of what I need. We've got to compassionately understand what is driving the behavior. And help people, in a way, redirect both their faulty thinking painful emotions, and some actually unhelpful behavior. But you see, if we try to do all of that by just saying, stop doing this and do that, the word says this, so go and do it, we will be unproductive and ineffective in our discipleship. You see, the starting point is relational care. That there's an, an, is there an affectionate longing and a love for the people that we're trying to encourage? 
So people do need comfort for their pain, but they also need curiosity as to what is going on and what the bigger picture and bigger story of God's activity is. That's what we're there to share with them. So, looking at some of the scriptures behind this call for hospitality, uh, in a couple of weeks we've got this friend of mine coming to help us at the men's retreat, and he was immensely challenged by this particular scripture. If you put that Titus scripture up there, Laurie. An overseer, a leader, an elder, manages God's household, he or she, must be hospitable. In Titus, this is the first positive attribute of a leader, hospitality. He said, as they reflected on that in their church, they had eight pastors. He said, I've probably been in maybe two or three of those pastors' houses once. We just didn't do hospitality. We did a lot of teaching. We did a lot of church stuff. We didn't do hospitality. And he tells the story of being challenged by this and renewing his commitment to opening up his home. Because when you do that, you open up your life. That's what we're talking about. He said the the first time that he had an opportunity to use his oven was when his neighbor called around because she was baking a birthday cake and her oven had packed up. She knocks at the door and uh, asks if she could use his oven. He led her into the kitchen, opened the oven door, and took out all the books that were in it because he was using it as a bookcase. <laughs> he likes books. He enjoys reading. But he taught himself to cook. And he moved back to Chicago, and they have hundreds of people not just come for meals, but actually stay overnight. He oriented his ministry around hospitality, and it came through revelation. Welcome people into your home and don't grumble about it. I love that. Peter, he tells it as it is, doesn't he? Because it's costly sometimes. What if it doesn't go well? don't like them anyway that much. What are we going to do after an hour? I've got to clean up. What if they don't like my cooking? You see, we worry about all this faulty thinking stuff. It's not about the cooking. It's not about the state of the house. It's our heart. Do we want to be together? So we don't do it begrudgingly. We do it cheerfully. The heart of the Christian worship is a meal. We've narrowed it down to communion, where we come forward and receive some bread and wine, but it started out as a love feast. You see, this is what they devoted themselves to, the breaking of bread, to hospitality, to eating together, knowing one another with glad and sincere hearts. All right, second thing. Focus on making friends. Focus on making friends. Jesus said to his disciples in John's Gospel, I have called you friends. You're my friends. God saves. God makes friends. Abraham, Moses, he spoke with them as a friend speaks to another. Jesus modeled friendship as a foundation for discipleship. What is friendship? Tell me, what is friendship to you? Helping each other? Anything else? Sharing life? Anything else? 
being committed. Yeah, covenant friendship. That's the biblical model. David and Jonathan established a friendship unto death, not unto inconvenience. You see, our culture, we don't know a lot about this kind of friendship because we experience a lot of aloneness. I always remember our, we used to go camping in France quite a bit with our children. And when you arrive at the campground, particularly in you know, new campgrounds, this is a serious issue on their minds. Will I make friends? And we would dispatch them. They'd go off down the swimming pools. And, uh, and inevitably, you know, they'd come running back, at least one of them saying, I made a new best friend. What, in a few hours? <laughs> but you see, it, it highlights how significant and important it is to us as children that we would connect. You see, that's how we're created. That's what we're wired for. And sadly, as we get older, we learn to cope without this when we shouldn't. We need authentic, loving friendship. And that implies, like we said, shared lives, experiences, interests, affectionate longing, love for one another, even care being expressed to one another, supporting, eating together, inspiring one another towards life goals, actually being honest with each other. And good friends can be truly honest. A truly good friend, the proverb says, will openly correct you. Anyone ever openly corrected a friend? How'd that go? Anyone felt pretty aggrieved when somebody tried to openly correct you? And yet, we need this. We don't have the truth. We have blind spots. If we're committed to growth into Christ, we need people who will help us see the truth. Have you got people that you would trust with that? Do you have friends like that? If you're a guy, married, when's the last time you asked your wife for that kind of feedback? I've gone from preaching to meddling now, haven't I? We don't have to ask. It's freely given. Woo! Just make sure you say thank you when you receive the gift. And please do it lovingly, wives. But of course, this is what you see in Jesus' life. I mean, his friend Peter, he got some feedback, didn't he? He goes from the highs, you're Peter, and this rock, I'll build my church to get behind me, Satan. I mean, talk about a quick transition. But that's what friends do. We don't leave people alone and deceived. Jesus was a friend, not just of disciples, he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is one of the chief characteristics. They couldn't get over it. They called him a, a wine-bibber, a drunkard, because he hung out with people. I think this is extraordinary. They called him a glutton, because he liked to eat. God likes to eat. It's more amazing. If you like to eat with us, open the door and I'll come in and sup with you, as John says in the book of Revelation. God is passionate about friendship because friends remove aloneness. I love the old HBO series, Band of Brothers. Anyone, anyone watch Band of Brothers? No? But that's what I'm talking about when I talk about communitas. You see, this is a word that speaks 
not just a community, but it's a group of people with a, with a purpose in life. There's a sense in which we go through something together, particularly something that's stressful, something that's, another word that gets thrown into this, this, this liminal space, this place of transition. When we go through that together and bonds strengthen, that we realize we're there for one another and we need one another, and we experience the blessing of loving protection, something is forged among us. It changes us. We get established with a group of people that we love literally as brothers. And we would die for them. This is communitas. We're going through a little bit of a transition here, aren't we, at Jericho Road? What if this becomes, God wants to lead this community into a place you've not been before? And that's scary. But if we're together and with him, it's glorious. That's what I'm praying for. And that might mean we've got to leave some things behind. I don't know. But it is liminal. It's, it's actually... It, it sort of removes some of our sense of false security to provide us with something more secure than we had, that we're just kind of trying to grip a hold of when there's something more bountiful over the next hill, I believe. And, and church is having to adapt. 85 to 90% of churches in the States, in North, and I think it's probably true of North America as a whole, are either plateaued or in decline. Is that not a message that church has to adapt? I think that's a message the church has to adapt. As much as I have been blessed by forms and expressions of church and worship, the goal is a new generation. We've got to raise up a new generation. And you won't like parts of that. But will you love it? Community is not about just huddle and cuddle. I hope it's got some of that in it. But it, it has to have purpose. And a part of that is growth. A part of that is risking new, inviting new. Run out of time. You know, in the, there's communities in Africa where at 13, the fathers come in and take the, children, the, the boys from their mothers because they've got to go through a liminal communitas experience to become men. And it's out in the wild where they're left alone for six months with occasional visits from some of the old guys that they discover something about themselves together. They realize they need one another. They realize there's, there's got to be a transition from childhood to manhood. And they discover it in the place of testing. And they discover it together. I think it's too easy to stay as children, infants, babes, huddling and cuddling, when we're called to this glorious adventure of the kingdom, doing battle against strongholds of unbelief and false thinking. Can I say number three? Make love the goal. Make love the goal. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, John writes, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Make love the goal because God is the goal and God is love. And God's way is always one of love. God so loved. That's why Paul spoke of loving affection, affectionate care for the churches and the people within it and the people he was discipling. He loved them. And our love for one another is how others will know that we are disciples of Jesus. 
rather than Christians or churchgoers. I want to be with people who are followers of Jesus and his teaching. And that's, boy, that's challenging. That's liminal. But that's how people know that we truly belong to him and him to us. And it's our unity that is his gift to us in him. We don't create it. But it's our unity and our commitment to love one another, to sustain and maintain and hold it, that is a testimony to the world that the Heavenly Father sent Jesus into the world. I in them and you, Father, in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you have sent me, have loved them, even as you have loved me. Jesus' prayer for us in John 17. Our unity. That means we've got to forgive one another. That means we've got to put up with our imperfections and our different preferences. That means we've got to value and accept each other at the point of difference. This is love. Love is not about just feeling good. Love is about sacrificially meeting the need of another at cost to me if necessary. So the, the painful side of unmet need we looked at, the positive side, very quickly I'll go through this, because this is what love is. And then I've got a quick video. Next, next slide, Laurie. So when our needs are met, this is love. This is the potential. This is discipleship. When we experience acceptance at our point of failure or difference, when we're encouraged by one another, when we're comforted in our struggles and pain, or we're appreciated for the efforts that we're making, even though we've still got a long way to go, these are all expressions of love. That changes us. Next one. It changes the way we think. We start to believe, hey, maybe, maybe people do care about me. Maybe I am worthy of something. Maybe there's something about me that could make a difference. I can do it. God cares for me. I'm empowered to step out and risk more as I am loved and as I am secure in the reality of the relationship. I feel positive feelings. I feel loved and cared for. It changes me. I feel more secure and more grateful. These are positive, empowering emotions that we all need to live out of. And therefore, I'm more free to express kindness, to give to others, without expecting anything in return, to be considerate, to pursue excellence, to risk, to step out there. You see, it's rooted in my, my experience of love, my needs being met. And then the possibility of family, relationship, faith, character, maturity that comes from love. So there's the dream. Huh? I think that's the kingdom. That's the invitation. And I think that's for us. We could change the valley around our dinner table if we invest ourselves lovingly in one or two people and experience communitas, purposeful community and life change in the midst of it. And we learn to experience and share Christ and minister him, his power wherever we find ourselves. It can be a meal table in the workplace as much as a meal table in your home. But do you have within you the potential? Do you have the, 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 the life of Christ in you? It is no different for you as it was for St. Paul 
Saint John, whomever. You see, this is the plan. But it's mature disciples that multiply. And therefore, to be about the task of growing into maturity is our priority. <coughs> Hospitality, friendship, and love. Let's just take a few moments, people round about us, and just reflect together on that. What has, what has excited you? What has challenged you? Is this a pipe dream? What would it mean to you? I don't know. What questions come to mind? Let's just take a moment to process and reflect together. And maybe even pray if the Holy Spirit is moving. You see, we're in this together. This is not a come and me do my God thing. It's no, we're, we're part of a people together on mission, I believe. At least that's God's invitation to us. So let's together just reflect and hear one another's hearts and be encouraged. Okay, just take a few moments. Take a risk. Introduce yourselves if you've not met people, unless it's your spouse. Maybe go and find somebody else's family unit. <coughs> Lorraine, can we put the screen with the three points on? Hospitality, making friends, and love is the goal. Now, back in, back in the presentation, back in the presentation, the three points of the sermon. All right, let's um, take another minute or so, and we'll be drawing those conversations to a close. And the worship band could make their way back up. Okay, Randy. Can you bring your crew back up? Sorry, 